This is a story about a quiet, thoughtful man named Harlan LeBlanc. He brought his hands from his lap and held them out and turned them from one side to the other and back. He studied the freckled skin and the tracing of veins, and he looked deeper still at the lines on his fingers, the lines within lines, intersecting and curving and given to him alone. The story is about how and why LeBlanc gets tangled up in a murder investigation. He studied his hands by lamplight and thought of what they'd done and what they might yet do. Strange thoughts trapped between night and day. We're talking about the darkness and the hope in James Wade's new novel, Beasts of the Earth. On this, Desideratum. Desideratum is a Latin word. It means things that are desired as essential. This podcast celebrates storytelling as essential. I'm audiobook narrator Teresa Bakken, showcasing the talents of my author and narrator friends. I hope you'll hear an artist you love or find your next favorite wordsmith. You look like you're out and about somewhere. I'm in the camper in the backyard. My wife and daughter uh, are painting pumpkins this morning um, because my two and a half year old does not care that Halloween is over. Um, she's like, I still see the paint, I still see the pumpkins, so let's let's keep going. It's funny how kids rearrange your life, isn't it? A hundred percent. Become your life. <laughs> so for me, this book is a blend of action and imagery and allegory or metaphor. I thought we would start with the action part of it. This is a murder mystery. It's the first time I've ever kind of taken on a like a whodunit um and it's still something that you know is driven like you said by imagery and allegory and metaphor but I like being pulled by the plot and I feel like Harlan was also being pulled by the plot in other words you know as readers we come in into his life when he's got an established routine yes um, and then we watch it unravel with this murder and everything that follows. And, um, and so it was, it was fun and also uh, a unique challenge to kind of build up the world that Harlan lives in and build up that character and then have to throw him into this absolute chaos that, that takes place afterwards. Yeah. And he's, he's a quiet man. He's a man of few words. And one of the things that I liked about him is that he, he does then run towards danger sort of unexpectedly, right? He seeks to help out a friend after this murder happens on the campus where he's a groundskeeper. And I read that you, that that's where this, the germ of this story began um, as a short story. Yeah, that was another thing that was unique about this is I wrote a short story called Eligible back in 2015. You know, there was something about Harlan 
that character just kind of kept whispering to me a little bit. And I try to, both with protagonists and antagonists, I try to explain them a little bit. You know, I mean, you can you can write a heck of a story with a bad guy that's just pure evil, but I, I like to try to explain how people get to where they are. Yes. So with Harlan, I wanted to kind of explain why he does run towards danger seemingly and why he does kind of have this need for atonement to want to help other people no matter what. And so we set that up in part one with him doing kind of these little kind deeds throughout his routine and throughout his day and just doing all he can to kind of help without seeking out recognition for it. We definitely are left with this feeling that he that he needs to help others and that maybe there is a more sinister reason or backstory or something that's kind of clawing at him, you know, demons from his past. Yes. And the other timeline focuses around a boy named Michael. And Michael, uh, in contrast, really is fleeing from danger, is running away from danger and from violence. And he ends up befriended by or in the, in the care of a dying poet. Um, this storyline puzzle pieces together really beautifully with the main storyline. I wondered how Michael's story started um, puzzle piecing together for you with Harlan's. Well, one of the important things for me was to keep those storylines somewhat mirrored to where the, the arch and the crescendo and, and all those things um, basically had the same pacing. Yeah, I didn't want somebody to be reading, you know, be halfway through the novel and one storyline is hitting its peak and the other storyline is floundering or, you know, something like that. And so I tried to mirror them as best I could because both Michael and Harlan have these choices essentially that they have to make. And they have these, again, kind of this need for atonement. So as they're struggling with that internally, you see them have to make these external choices as to whether or not they're going to seek revenge for, you know, wrongs that have been visited on them or, or on other people. And, and with Remus, who kind of takes in Michael when Michael flees a very tough situation uh, in his home life, Remus was there basically to kind of be that same guiding light for Michael that Harlan's routine was for him. In other words, Harlan kind of clung to that routine to help keep him sane, basically. And Michael, being much younger, probably couldn't do that on his own. And so he needed someone to kind of show him how to be a good person and um, how to navigate some of these kind of morally gray situations. And, um, and plus, I just loved the character of Remus. It's a very heavy, very dark novel. And I think that Remus brings certainly some hopefulness and some light to it that might not otherwise be there. Yes, he's kind of a father figure. He lives a very solitary life that's not really rooted in like traditional religion, yet he shows the boy good. He gives the boy hope. You have one of his lessons that he gives to Michael includes um, that we're all crafted from the same stuff, which always reminds me of Carl Sagan sure. and star stuff. Um, but you, that's a lesson that you're bringing to the story from, from a book. And I thought, I thought that was interesting because you you kind of touch on a couple classics in this novel. And I wondered how how what you're reading, authors that were important to you kind of weave themselves into your storytelling. Oh yeah. I mean, that's you know, it's it's so funny because I 
I think a lot of writers might have the fear of being unoriginal or, you know, when they're compared to other authors, you know, they're gracious for the comparison, but might be worried about the expectations or that they're too similar to, to someone else. I don't feel that way at all because I just think originality is kind of impossible. Um, one of my favorite authors and, and kind of coincidentally, an author that I get compared to a lot is Cormac McCarthy, which is a terrible comparison because he's a genius and I'm just a guy, but uh, he has the quote that books are made from other books. And I just, I think that is inherently true and will always be true. And so for me, when I'm reading uh, some of the books you mentioned, uh, that are in Beasts of the Earth, I talk about Of Mice and Men by Steinbeck. And I, when I'm reading these books, I'm always taking things from them, whether it's stylistically or, you know, thematically or, you know, whatever, there's, there's always going to be things that either consciously or subconsciously I'm, I'm picking up. And so, yeah, I mean, when I wrote Beasts of the Earth, there is a literary criticism book called A Bloody and Barbarous God that was written by Petra Mundik, and it talks about the metaphysics of McCarthy's writing. And so as I'm reading that and taking notes and having all these, oh, you know, aha moments, uh, I'm also kind of seeing how that plays with Harlan and how that plays with his character and, and his past and all those things. And so I try not to let that fear of being unoriginal creep in because at the end of the day when you're writing an 80,000 word novel or in this case only a 62,000 word novel you can't help but have your own voice be the loudest one it's interesting that that you respond that way i think it must be difficult to find your own voice honestly because we're all as you said the products of everything that we've taken in and that originality is difficult i also think there's something about where we are in life, and again, I think you play with this as time in your novel, where we are in life and when we take something in, it could mean something different to us at different times, right? Absolutely. And I've read that you're just an avid reader, actually, and that you read some McCarthy over and over again, that you return to some classics as inspiration is the word that you used. And I think that's really, I think that's a, an important thing to do at different periods of your life that the work speaks to you differently too. Yes, ma'am, I completely agree. Uh, Grapes of Wrath, I think, is one off the top of my head that did that. In high school, I didn't see the significance and the depth of it, you know, like I do now. And so, so I completely agree. I think it's just, it's where you are, different moments in your life, where you are as, you know, in what you've learned, where you are as a learner, a reader, a thinker. I mean, it, it's funny because I, I use that argument in talking about writing. But that's the theme in basically all everything I write, that our choices, we do have to take responsibility for them. But at the same time, it's, they're so much narrower than what we might actually believe. Again, they're just built on the backs of decisions and decisions and decisions that go back as far back as when fish started to walk to where we are who we are because of all the things that have happened before us. And that's not to say that folks can't change, but again, even that is a very limited path that we make our, choose our own directions, but we've already been set on the path. And so I just, I don't know. I love, I love the idea of that. A lot of people I think might look at it as bleak, but I actually think it's both something that makes us feel insignificant 
But in my mind, I think it's even more purposeful, right? Once you realize that, you kind of are unfettered by it to a degree. Yeah, you do have a a reverence for and an incredible imagery for nature through time, right? You literally in one page, I think you walk us back to the Cretaceous period and we're on, we're on the bones of uh, primordial graves. And so the connection to land and to past is always, for me, very present in your storytelling. But um, I also felt like in this novel, you were focusing on human nature, not just nature, right? So the, the sort of the the collective power of man to destroy or, or damage nature itself, land, water, like there was an industry component in several of the scenes in this novel. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's definitely, you know, what folks would call a B or C storyline. It's, it's in the background, but it's definitely mirrors the overall theme of the novel that we are the beasts of the earth. And what I wanted to do again was kind of with that mirror idea um, for Michael, you know, we see an alligator in the swamp attack a fawn. So we have this predator that's attacking this innocent creature. And Michael kind of stupidly tries to step in and save the fawn. You know, again, there's that need to protect, um, that need to do good, even if it's not the smartest thing. Right. Um, and also that kind of sense of atonement. He kind of sees his sister who he struggles to protect as the fawn in that situation. And, um, and then for Harlan in his storyline, we have the pelican that is kind of his, his visitant that just appears again and again, yes. appears in progressively more surreal manner as Harlan descends into his psychosis a little bit. And so again, it's, it's, it's mirroring human nature versus nature, nature, and showing how both can be beautiful, but both can absolutely be brutal and and hard to cope with it's definitely a different role in this book than in my previous books you know there's a part in there where I describe the hill country which is where I live and it looks beautiful from above and the closer you get down into the thicket it's like there's half of the country's most you know venomous snakes are down here and there's briars everywhere and flash floods and it's just you know, it's this ruthless place uh, that is that is constantly trying to kill you. <laughs> it's just really fun to to juxtapose nature and then human nature and see kind of how they are the same. Yes. Well, and you do a lot with balance. Like you were just talking about mirroring. And I thought Remus, that character, was one of those balances, right? He gives us hope. One of the other places that I found balance in this sort of dark, gritty storytelling are some of the secondary characters that you created in both of the timelines. Um, you bring in people that provide balance to the dread with humor. Sure. Uh, more so than I remember reading in the last book. And I think that some humor and some lightness in the interactions. And I wondered like how you see humor sort of working its way into your storytelling and into your work. Yeah, I mean, again, you're absolutely correct in terms of there. I, I actively tried to put more humor in this book than the previous ones, because honestly, I thought that the book itself was darker, right? It, I, I feel like it, some themes that even if you thought the that River Sing Out was dark, I, this one, I think maybe gets even, you know, even murkier. And so I wanted to make sure to, A, for the readers, just have some comic relief. I think in storytelling, it's important 
Um, I think oftentimes with the comic relief, with the ability to kind of take a breath, um, you're actually able to almost sneak in the themes and the, the heavier parts of the story in a more effective way. And then also thematically, just, you know, the people that are being humorous are people that are in dying towns with dying industry and all this stuff. And so you think, well, why are they still cracking jokes and being almost jovial at some points? But to me, that's just kind of the way the world is. I think that is one of the very special things about humans is that we can make jokes about some really bleak things or we can laugh in the face of some really depressing realities. And so uh, so it kind of made sense to me. And it, and it speaks also a lot in the Southern storytelling tradition. You know, there are just so many great Southern characters, both in fiction and in real life. I mean, I grew up in East Texas and it was almost a rite of passage to be able to, you know, tell jokes around the campfire or to, you know, make people laugh. And it makes the town to me feel a little more real and the and kind of the setting feel a little more honest. Yes, I had not pieced that together that it was regional. But when you just said that, that makes so much sense to me. Some of the humor that happens for me happened in the diner. There were two moments that I wanted to bring up to you that kind of struck me. It's about indecision. And I found it funny because it was a reference to phlegm. <laughs> Would you talk a little bit about that, where that, where that humor or commentary came from for you? Absolutely. Um, there's basically, there's two sides to that. The first is just my own indecision is damn near crippling. People talk about writer's block and I talk about writer's indecision. I'm never blocked up, but I'm always at a loss of which path to choose. And so it was a nod to that, to just my own. It was a, it was a comment on my own indecision. Having this character, the, the owner of the diner, older, rugged lady who chain smokes multiple packs a day, um, having her smoke this menthol cigarette and talk about how indecision killed her ex-husband because he never could decide on anything and, and it causes inflammation. I just, the humor in that is that I think that we as humans latch on to one part of our health or our mental health and completely ignore others, uh, you know, almost like our own mental gymnastics. And I'm just as guilty, if not more so than, than anybody else. I've always just found that such a, again, such a unique and curious aspect of humans, kind of what we hold in esteem uh, and what we don't in terms of, of anything really, but our health, our mental health, but also our opinions, our political beliefs, like we, we tend to really latch on to some things and just completely let others uh, pass us by. And so that was, it was kind of mixing indecision with that ability of humans to, to do mental gymnastics as she's smoking the cigarette and telling Harlan that he shouldn't be indecisive because it'll end up uh, killing him. But, um, and also it, it, there's a little bit, I guess, of a, of a tertiary meaning there because Harlan has gotten the same sandwich at this diner over and over. This is routine, right? Yeah. So it goes back to his routine. There is no indecision there because he has set up his life in such a way that he doesn't ever have to make choices, which I think makes it that much harder when he actually, when it is confronted with this very large choice in whether or not to, uh, you know, to pursue this kind of murder investigation on his own. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really that's really interesting because indecisiveness really means that you're constantly considering all the options. Indecisiveness is someone who's looking at every angle, every picture, every possibility, 
Right. And the, the anxiety of it, right? Yes. Right. Because if, if there's a reason you're considering all the options, it's usually because you are then considering the outcomes and how those, how making the wrong decision would then impact you. Right. Yeah. It's a lot of times it's more, you're more focused on the negative potential outcomes than you are on the positive. So in other words, it's not that you're, uh, it's not that you're super excited about the potential of this choice. It's that you're super scared that you're going to make the wrong choice and it's going to you know, be the wrong outcome. Yes. I'm not sure who said it, but there's, there's a quote about when you say yes to something, you've said no to everything else. Absolutely. I read too, that you, one of the ways that you kind of handle indecision is that as you're writing, you have a, a separate place, like a document that you store your cuttings so that you don't have to really throw them out <laughs> and that you call it scraps. Is that right? That is a hundred percent true. And it is absolutely related to the indecision and the, the fear that I'm making a wrong choice. And so this basically mitigates, mitigates that decision to where I can say I'm okay with it because the words aren't really going away, right? They're in the scrap pile and perhaps they can be used again. Again, just knowing it's there, it's almost like, uh, you know, folks who have like panic disorder or anxiety um, and, you know, they're prescribed a pill that's like, hey, if you start to have a panic attack, take this pill, it'll calm you down. And so often I've heard folks say, and I say this myself, that just having those pills, just knowing they're there makes me less anxious. And so that's the same thing, with the scrap pile, just knowing that I'm not actually getting rid of this writing right. makes it a little easier to, to deal with losing it in the manuscript that it's, that it was meant for. I love the idea of, of it in a holding pattern waiting for you, should you need it. <laughs> um, okay, so the second moment in the diner is when LeBlanc sees someone's daughter and he says, I could not help but wonder at the mirror of children. And I know you're a parent. Um, and I just, I think that being a parent shifts things in us, makes us see things differently. And so I wonder if you're, if you're seeing a mirror yet in your very young daughter, or um, if you feel that having her there as a potential mirror shifts things for you as you're writing. Yeah, I mean, honestly, both of those things, uh, you know, and, and it's funny, my wife brought this up just the other night is she said, you know, I'm, I'm often so concerned with the things that we're imparting on her, right? Because that's kind of the number one thing as a parent is you're like, okay, we want to make sure, you know, teach her right from wrong and all these things. But she was like, I, I often fail to remember that she already is genetically predisposed to certain things that are like us, you know, and, and things that like I did just completely unprompted as a baby and, you know, she'll do it too. have similar mannerisms or um, my God, she's a spitting image of me as a kid, which is, which freaks me out. Cause I thought she was going to look like my wife. And, but then when I see my daughter and her curly hair and I look back at pictures of me as a, as a kid and we look exactly the same, it it's, it's wild, you know? And, and of course that sense of responsibility completely changed my life. Uh, it, as soon as she was born, it was like every priority in me shifted and I didn't even realize, I mean, you know, I had consciously leading up to her birth, obviously made, you know, I'm reading the baby books. I'm, but then once she was born, it was, it was completely out of my hands in terms of it somehow, like it felt like it shifted my DNA. 
And then as far as the writing goes, the only thing that I've really felt shift so far is, and, and I can't believe that I'm saying this because I can't believe that I felt this way, but I did start to think about what is the legacy kind of going to be and not necessarily the legacy of like, when I'm dead and gone, I want people to remember me, but more so of when my daughter at whatever age she decides she wants to read dad's books, what is she going to think about me? What is she going to think that my priorities were or my belief system or anything like that? And, and while I always maintain that even though my books are, you know, heavy and dark, I think that there's still such a thread of hope that runs through all of them. And I want to be sure that she takes that from it. You know, I want her to be aware of the realities of the world and the hardships and, and all of those things. But I want her to be able to realize those things without completely losing her ability to, to hope and dream and all. And that's a very delicate balance. Yeah. And, and maybe that's the point. Maybe you just spend your life trying to, to find that balance and to find that area between black and white to where you're, you're not naive, but you're not completely pessimistic, you know? And, and I think that's one of the great challenges in life and one of the great challenges in writing. Okay. That's a good place to pause and listen to some of his writing. What you'll hear is from the story about the young character, Michael. In just a few minutes about the boy's family dynamic, you'll hear narrator Roger Clark just embody these characters. I can almost feel him walking in their shoes and looking through their eyes. He's performed about a hundred audiobooks, worked in theater and film, and is best known for portraying Arthur Morgan in Rockstar Games' Red Dead Redemption. This is from Beasts of the Earth, written by James Wade, narrated by Roger Clark. A boy should be happy when his father returns, but Michael was not happy. He had memories of Monday memories distorted by time and hearsay. And though there existed still a longing for the comfort and protection of a father, dread guided the boy. Doreen did not share in Michael's hesitation. She followed Monday about the house as if she were fastened to him by an invisible string. When her father sat at the porch for hours and looked out at the bay, the young girl sat next to him until one or both of them had fallen asleep. She dragged her doll behind her, and when it collected mud, her father would wipe it off, and when she spoke to it, her father would speak to it too. Bubba, she said one night in the yelling whisper of a child, why don't you like Daddy? Who said I didn't like him? the boy asked staring up at the shadows on the ceiling. Daddy did. He said you don't like him because of what he done to Caroline. Michael rolled toward his sister's side of the mattress. Dory, did he tell you what he did? Sure he told me. He tells me lots of stuff. Like what? Secrets. What secrets? All kinds. And he tells Dolly, too. He told her he was going to take us to Florida, and that's where Mickey Mouse lives. That's not a secret. I uh, know. You can't say secrets, Bubba, she told him, and laughed and shook her head, and her dark curls waved back and forth in front of her face. 
The next morning, Monday sat on the porch and drank his coffee and Doreen beside him with an empty plastic teacup that she raised to her doll's mouth. Michael watched them, and when he was certain neither was coming inside, he went to his mother's bedroom where she was still barefoot in her nightgown. He stood watching her as she rolled a cigarette over the bedside table. When she at last noticed him, she flinched and shook her head. Lord, boy, what is it now? she asked. You just standing there like some kind of damn ghoul? Mom, are you scared of Daddy? the boy asked, and he was nervous to ask, and more nervous still when the big woman stared at him for several seconds. I just mean, he said, wanting to fill the silence. Because of what he did, are you afraid he might... Do you think he's a bad man? The woman hung her head, and when she lifted it back up, her face was full of disappointment. How dare you, she hissed. What? Michael asked, confused. How dare you, she said louder. After all that man has done for us... She rose from the bed, and the large divot in the mattress rose behind her. I was fifteen years old when I had you, boy, she said, her voice scolding. You know how easy it would have been for your daddy to just up and leave? But he did his godly duty and took care of me, took care of us. Lord knows I ain't no prize for a man, but he stuck with me. My whole life I've been abandoned by people supposed to love me, but not him. I know, Mama, I just... You think nobody makes mistakes? That what you think? Jesus must have just been wasting his time up there on that cross, huh? Because everybody in Michael's world is perfect, is that right? No, ma'am, the boy mumbled. Your daddy wasn't the only one there that night. He was just in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people. Yeah, but he still... And this time she slapped him hard across his cheek. The only thing I'm scared of, she said, holding her finger in front of his rapidly reddening face, is that I'll lose that man again. The boy turned without saying anything else and walked back into the living room, and watched out the window as Doreen held her doll to her father's ear. The man leaned over and listened and nodded, and the girl giggled, and beyond the porch and the bay and the horizon, the sun was up, and the light was shining through the window and across the floor. It stopped just before the boy's feet, and he looked down at the light and the shadow, and when he looked up again, his father was staring at him through the window. Roger's work is really, he is the voice of God, I think. <laughs> he's, he's wonderful. I still don't think that I fully comprehend like that he, he asked to do this, you know, and uh, after he did River Sing Out, he, he asked to, to do Beast of the Earth. And I was just like, wow, you know, that's, that's high praise. It is. Yeah, for him to say this is suited to me. And I do think it's really suited to his voice. And I, I wondered how he would do Michael, actually. But he, he gives it a tenderness 
Oh, right. It was, it, I, I, I had the same thought, um, you know, but he had done so well, I, I think it with Jonah and, and River Sing out that, I, so I knew he could do it, but um, yeah, I, I honestly, I thought he did an even better job. I just thought he was just so, so spot on. I think he has a reverence in his voice and yet he also has a grittiness. So again, he balances those things that you are balancing yeah. in your writing style. I couldn't agree more. I think that, uh, yeah, I think he's really well suited. I did want to thank you for sending me the physical copy. You know, I, I listened to the audiobook, I listened to Roger and I read the ebook kind of simultaneously, but I know that this is a story that your scenes and sentences and symbolism, um, the way that you explore spiritualism and nihilism I know that I'll want to return to that. I really appreciate you you saying that. That means a lot, honestly, because I'm I'm very much a physical book return to certain pages and passages, you know, that. And so to hear you say that you want to do that, thank you so much for saying that. I'm looking forward to seeing and reading what you craft next. I literally have a document up on my uh, computer that I was looking at before we hopped on and I'm just staring at it because I've been staring at it for several days now and it has six super short outlines like six basically paragraphs each one is its own novel and uh, or could be its own novel and I just feel like whichever one I pick I'm saying no to the other to the other five yes, or no so. for now you just need to keep those others in scraps <laughs> and revisit yeah, exactly because I think you have a long career ahead of you <laughs> I want to thank Lauren Matoro at Blackstone Publishing for connecting me again with James and his work. You can find both their websites in the show notes. If you would like to hear more of Roger Clark performing Beasts of the Earth, check out Libro FM. When you use my affiliate link to Libro FM, you support this podcast. And with Libro FM, you can also choose a local bookstore in your neighborhood to support. You can find the affiliate link in the show notes and on all my social media bios. As always, thank you for being here. And thanks for listening. Great to see you again. You too, Miss Teresa. Have a good one. Bye.